So now looking at this passage, we are, we're going to dig into Paul's prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. Starting in verse 15, please follow along as I read God's word. For this reason, what we just heard, verses 3 through 14, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Hear the word of the Lord. Recently, I listened to an interview of a woman who, when she was 13 years old, escaped out of North Korea. To many, listening to her story unfold, it sounded as if her life went from bad to worse. The way that she escaped from North Korea was being sold as a slave into China. Over the course of several years, she went from China to South Korea and then ended up in the United States of America. To hear her describe her life in North Korea has been seared into my brain. Uh, It really struck me as she kept referring to that life as being in a different world, that you just could not even imagine what it was like there versus anywhere else in the world. Citizens of North Korea don't realize what they are experiencing is really so tragic because they have nothing else to compare it to. An authoritarian regime regime that has caused famine leading to the deaths of millions They cause the famines. They have no internet in North Korea, and some of you are like, how could that be possible? Others are like, what's the big deal? But the access to internet exposes the people to what's happening around the globe. They have no access. The electricity in North Korea does not run all day long, only partially throughout the day and then turned off. The authoritarian regime has actually, without the citizens knowing it, erased vocabulary. If anybody is familiar with George Orwell's 1984, this should be be ringing in your ears. Making it illegal to have loving relationships. 
She described the love between a mother and a daughter, not allowed. The romantic love between a husband and wife, illegal. The only love that can be expressed by a citizen of North Korea is to the leader. It wasn't until she left the country that she realized what great suffering and oppression she had lived under. It was just the normal life because that's all she knew. And comparing her experience in North Korea and hearing her talk about our experience as U.S. citizens is a good reminder. It is the 4th of July and thankful to be in a like-minded church where the flag is not being waved and we're not singing specific songs. Uh, But to recognize that we do live in a place that is blessed. We We are gifted with freedoms that in comparison to North Korea are so drastically different. So there's much to be thankful for. I know that many of us, if you're like me, get discouraged when thinking about the trajectory of our culture. But what, may we not forget the, the blessings that we, that we have. And as she talked about her experience, there were kind of two themes in her life. Now she feels charged to make people aware of what's going on in North Korea, plead for people to help, and also really speaking into those who in America feel like they're experiencing oppression, and her crying out, you don't know the first thing about oppression. Don't squander what you have here. Just be aware of how different it could be. And these trajectories could lead y'all ultimately to that end. Please be aware. It's as if she's shaking Americans and those in other countries that experience freedom, saying, wake up. Hear what I've experienced. Now, I I don't want to camp out here and make it about the freedoms that we experience in the United States versus no freedom in North Korea, but it parallels so well with the Christian life because many of us functionally are acting as if we're still in bondage and lose sight of the freedoms that we have in Christ, the hope that we have in Christ, the riches that we have in Christ, and the power that we have in Christ. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 reminds us, and if you're like me, I need to be shaken by the Word of God, confronted with the realities of who I am in Christ that leads to a paradigm shift. It, it, it leads to a, a, an enlightened eyes of the heart to see the realities of what it means to be in union with Christ. We have moved out of the kingdom of darkness and are now in the kingdom of light. But as circumstances crash against our lives, situations that are very difficult, we so quickly can forget who we are in Christ. It is not by chance or accident or man-made that we gather with the saints weekly to sit under the Word of God. We need to be reminded and encouraged to fellowship with God and with one another. To 
lift up songs, to hear the word proclaimed, to have scripture read, to partake in the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper, we need that spiritual nourishment to be reminded, that shot in the arm, we are citizens of the new heavens and the new earth because we are in Christ Jesus. Paul, in this letter, helps us, reminds us of our identity in Christ. Just hear a few verses, first coming from chapter 2. This is who you were, know who you are. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Brothers and sisters, hear the glorious news of the gospel. In chapter 4, he picks up on this theme of our life, our new life in Christ. Starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God has intervened in rebels like us. The Apostle Paul has laid out God's sovereign grace, what he has accomplished in these verses in chapter 1 that leads to worship and leads to prayer. Praising God for the conversion of sinners, the transformation, and then petitioning that God would continue the work that he started. I have a question, maybe a couple for you this morning. When was the last time you offered thanksgiving to God for his work in someone else's life? Are we attentive to the reports of progress, progress of the gospel, progress of sanctification in the life of believers around us? I think those are good questions to ponder. And does it lead us to be praying? Another question, if you were asked, what is the most important thing you could be praying for, for other believers, how would you respond? What's the most important thing that we could be interceding for one another? The Apostle Paul, here in our passage, 
answers that for us. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. There's a a general petition here. The first is that you may know God. Remember that Paul is praying for believers. I think this is important for us to remember. Believers who have experienced the salvation described in verses 3 through 14, he prays for them because so much more is open to them. And he desires them to know more and more of the riches of God's glorious grace. So if you think about conversion like we would think about a child being born, the new birth conversion, and a child physically being born, we we all know that as that child is laying there before us, there is so much in this child's life in the area of growth and learning and increasing, and and gaining insight. Likewise, when someone is converted, born again, there is so much to learn and to grow and to be strengthened in their walk with the Lord, to know God. And so Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Because of sin, we will always, on this earth, while we have breath in our lungs, struggle to keep our vision focused on the glory of God. C.S. Lewis once penned these words, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun, the sun that we see out in the sky, the sun has risen. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Paul is praying for the believers that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. They've experienced the new birth. And as they live this life that is, that is fraught with difficulties, trials, and sufferings, that they would have eyes to see clearly who they are in Christ. The great hope, there are three what's in this passage that he is praying for them to, to grasp, to see, to understand the hope, the riches, and the power, all three tethered to God, make no mistake. He wants their lives to reflect what C.S. Lewis was saying, that once you've seen and God pours out His, His glory, you get further glimpses of who He is, everything is transformed now. You can no longer experience this life without looking through that lens. We know from Scripture that it is God who must first turn on the light. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
We also know in this life, all sorts of things start to look and mean different when the light comes on. Our marriage starts to look very different. The way that we raise our children, discipline our children, a cancer diagnosis, a season of unemployment, sounds and smells of coffee being brewed in the morning, the mundane house chores, old hurts that we've experienced, and even new offenses. Everything begins to change when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. Christians need the Spirit of God to reveal more of Himself and His ways to us. How do we have a clearer glimpse of the glory of God? How do we understand and live in light of who we are in Christ? It is by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit's task to take the things that belong to the depths of God and bring them to us. We hear from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9-13. through 13. Please hear these important words. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we import this, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would make known to the believers in Ephesus and by way of application, believers who will read this letter pleading that the Spirit would make known to believers the realities that they experience, that they have in the Lord Jesus. This was mentioned just a few moments ago, but sin clouds my thinking. Sin clouds my will, my desires, my affections, and David Pallison penned these important words. Our ability to understand is greatly affected by the clarity or confusion of our faith and by the obedience or disobedience of our practice. The whole Christian life involves an unfolding and enlarging of the heart, opening us to the things of God a growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we want to look at those three what's. Paul wants his readers to see with enlightened eyes, first, hope. The hope that every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has. According to this prayer, From the Apostle Paul, a Christian should know 
What is the hope to which he has called you? Do you live as a person of hope? Would that be a distinctive mark of your life if I were to interact with maybe some of your coworkers or ask maybe your children, does my parent live by, by hope? Is, is my parent marked by being a person of hope? Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to receive a deeper and greater knowledge, not of just this ambiguous hope, but it's rooted, it is tethered to God. We are hopeful because because of the great redemption that God the Father has accomplished through His Son that has enabled those who were far off to be brought near by the blood of the Lamb. We have been called, not a a general call where some may receive Christ by faith and others just hear and don't. This is the effectual call. You have been called by God. This should breed hope in the believer. And the way that I want us to get there is to to hone in on who it is that has called us. All glory is given to God. Hope is rooted in God. So we want the aim of our lives to know God. In order to have a sure hope, to have deep certainty in this life, we must seek a deeper knowledge of the God who has called us a knowledge of the character of God. Who is this great God? He has disclosed Himself to us. Special revelation, the Word of God. He has made Himself known through the Son. In this life, if your hope is rooted on circumstances or rooted on relationships, It will crumble, it will fail. There's an old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less, and there is a line that says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Some of us have built our hope upon how our life is going. Man, when I locked in that particular job and I married that particular woman and we got to move to this particular house You start to build your hope on just things rather than the Creator. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Our hope is anchored on God. God can be relied on. He is eternal, immutable, and everlasting. God never changes. Your circumstances, believe me, they will change. There is no greater comfort than to anchor our lives upon God. Hope is is anchored or latches to the certainties of the promises of God. He who began a good work is faithful to bring it to completion. God is everlastingly the same. 
And it is this unchangeable God who has called you. He is a covenant-keeping God. If you have not spent much time, don't think it's that important to think about our God being a covenant-keeping God. Let me just encourage you. When you are struggling in the area of hope, of assurance, of certainty, when you start to understand, to know that you have entered into covenant with this covenant-keeping God, it changes everything. Your hope is sure. The covenant of redemption was made between the Father and the Son. The covenant between the Father and the Son is an everlasting covenant. The one who says, I am who I am, has given a people to his Son, which his Son has redeemed. Now Christ, the head of the new humanity, our federal head, has entered into covenant with us, and we have been effectually called by him to understand the truth about God's covenant of redemption will breed hope. The hymn goes on to say, His oath, His covenant, and His blood support me in the whelming flood. This world is is hard. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I love the example of Abraham when we think about hope. There are several passages in the New Testament that use Abraham as an example. In Romans chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul writes, inspired by the Spirit of God, about Abraham. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, his wife. God had promised that you will have a son. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Listen to verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Do you see how that hope is not just kind of out there floating around, confused on what it's actually anchored upon, but it is, it is tethered, it is connected to who God is. How do we have hope? when what we're seeing physically out of our eyes does not make any sense, and it is hard. We are reminded of who we know, who has effectually called us to himself, and reflect upon the character of this great and glorious God. The second blessing, the second what, that Paul wants his readers to be able to grasp, he's praying that the Holy Spirit would help them see with enlightened eyes of their hearts what are the riches 
of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, I I think there are kind of two ways to, to look at this second what. First is through the understanding that we... This, this really should blow our minds. We are God's inheritance. We are those whom the Father has given to the Son. And when you become a Christian, the Father sees you now clothed in the righteousness of His Son. Paul wants us to appreciate the value that God places on His own. Not because we are intrinsically worthy, but because we have been identified with His Son. We have been chosen in Christ, and our destiny, the riches, is that we will be co-heirs with Christ. Brothers and sisters, there should be great encouragement as we reflect on the hope of our calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. There's a story I want to share with you. A wealthy man and his son loved to collect rare art. It was something that they really connected when they were doing together. They had everything in their collection from Picasso's, so this man was wealthy, to Raphael's. They would often sit together and admire the great works of art. When the Vietnam conflict broke out, the son went to war. He was very courageous and died in battle while rescuing another soldier. The father was notified and grieved deeply for his only son. About a month later, just before Christmas, there was a knock at the door. A young man stood at the door with a large package in his hands. He said, sir, you do not know me, but I am the soldier for whom your son gave his life. He saved many lives that day, and he was carrying me to safety when a bullet struck him in the heart and he died instantly. He often talked about you and your love for art. The young man held out this package that he had before him. It was a portrait of his son. The father opened it and saw the painting by this young man. The young man said, I'm not really a great artist, but I think your son would have wanted you to have this. The father stared in awe at the way that the soldier had captured the personality of his son in the painting. And the father was so drawn to the eyes that his own eyes welled up with tears. He thanked the young man and offered to pay him for the picture. Oh, no, sir. I could never be repaid. Or I could never, um, I could never repay what your son did for me. This is a gift. The father hung the portrait over his mantle, and every time visitors would come over, probably wanting to see the amazing artwork that he owned, he took them to the portrait of his son before ever showing them any other other great works 
that he had collected. Several months later, the man passed away. There was a great auction to be had, an auction of all his paintings. Many influential people gathered, excited over seeing the great paintings and having the opportunity to purchase one for their own collection. On the platform sat the painting of his son. The auctioneer pounded his gavel. We will start the bidding with this picture of the son. Who will bid for this picture? There was silence in the room. Then a voice in the back of the room shouted, We want to see the famous painting. Skip this one. But the auctioneer persisted. Will someone bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding? $100. $200. Another voice shouted angrily, We didn't come to see this painting. We came to see the Van Goghs, the Rembrandts. Get on with the real bids. But still, the auctioneer continued, The sun, the sun, who will bid on the sun? Finally, a voice came from the very back of the room. It was the longtime gardener of the man and his son. I'll give $10 for the painting. Being a poor man, it was all that he could afford. The auctioneer responded, We have 10. Who will bid 20? Yells from the back, Give it to him for 10. Let's see the masters. 10 is the bid. Won't someone bid 20? The crowd was becoming angry. They didn't want the picture of the sun. They wanted more worthy investments for their collections. The auctioneer pounded the gavel, going once, going twice, sold for $10. A man sitting on the second row shouted, Now let's get on with the collection. The auctioneer laid down his gavel. I'm sorry, the auction is over. What about the paintings? I'm sorry. When I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will. I was not allowed to reveal that stipulation until this time. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. Whoever bought that painting would inherit the entire estate, including all of the paintings that the people were there to buy. The man who gets the son gets everything. Brothers and sisters, the riches of our glorious inheritance is rooted, is grounded upon our union with Christ. If you have the son, you have everything. Do we realize the awesome riches that have been bestowed upon us? Are we living out of the abundance of this grace? You think about the difficult moments in your life. If you have the Son, you have more than you could ever imagine. When facing temptations, if you are in Christ, you have hope, you have riches, And we will see in just a moment power because you have the Son. 
So third, Paul wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. This one's a hard one to even begin to put words to, to describe the power that is at work in us. D.A. Carson makes this important point when it comes to the power of God in the life of believers. He says, Paul cannot be satisfied with a brand of Christianity that is orthodox but dead, rich in theology but powerless when it comes to transforming people's lives. What we see here in the power that is available to those in Christ is both Yes, a future glory to come, but a present now that I want us to see. In verse 21, Paul says, For above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. We have much hope because we we know who we are in Christ. We know who has effectually called us, and our future is sure because of the promises of the one who made them. The power at work is present as well in this age. I I don't want us to, to lose sight of this reality when we think about the transformative power of Christ in our lives now. In chapter 3, in the other prayer that Paul prays, here verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Power at work within us now. The Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, writes this, probably familiar to a lot of us. His divine power, verse 3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Believers, did you hear that? There is power at work within us now. God has According to the Apostle Peter, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This means that we are equipped to live a life that glorifies God. By Christ's work, we have been given everything we need in this life right now, in our marriage, in our parenting, working alongside difficult co-workers or managers who are functioning at a completely different worldview, who have very different values. We all experience difficulties in this life, and we need to be reminded, we need to be encouraged that there is a power at work within us now, enabling us to walk out in this life all things that pertain to life and godliness. Paul prays, may the eyes of our hearts be enlightened to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. 
Now, if I were to ask you to describe God's power, where would you go? How would you describe the all-powerful God? Many may go to creation, and rightly so. Maybe you're going to a different place in your mind to describe the power of God. It's not as though there are levels of difficulty for an all-powerful God. There's not one act that he performs that more, requires more power than another. But Paul goes to a category that shows the most glorious, the most revealing display of God's power. First, Paul mentions the power that is at work within us is the power of the resurrection. The resurrection is where he goes to describe first this power that he, that he's praying for believers to grasp, to, to understand that this is part of their life in Christ. The resurrection unites every Christian with the life-giving force that raised Jesus from the dead. It is through the resurrection that the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Believers, did you hear that? We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The amazing power is available to transform us, to equip us, to empower us. God has given us everything for life and godliness. Secondly, Paul mentions the power displayed in the exaltation of Christ. Christ, after the resurrection ascended to the right hand of the Father. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see in our great salvation that we are raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly realms. The exaltation of Christ, and it leads right into the third. Paul declares the power exercised over everything. The exalted Christ reveals that he is all-powerful over all things, all rule and authority and power and dominion and and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One thing. I want us to see and be encouraged by is that all of God's sovereignty is mediated through Christ. And we are told in this passage that the sovereignty being exercised is for his people's good. Every single thing that we face in this life falls within the sweep of the sovereignty of Christ. This is so much more than a doctrine that we hold. It is transformative in the life of a believer. This is the power which is at work within you. Pulling from 
a preacher that I dearly love, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he asks a few questions. Are you a miserable, unhappy Christian? Feeling that the fight is too much for you? Are you on the point of giving up and giving in? What you need is to know the power that is working mightily for you. The same power that brought Christ from the dead. He goes on to say, what we need primarily is not an experience, but to realize what we are and who we are and what God has done in Christ and the way that he has blessed his own. How great is the power that is working within the lives of the saints. I know that I fall into this camp with you. There are times where I feel powerless. Where I see myself as a spiritual failure because the power of the flesh seems to be so great. Temptation of this world seems so overwhelming and my progress in the faith seems so slim. The answer that I need to hear, that you need to hear this morning, is to understand the great hope that we have because we have been called by God. Brothers and sisters, what great hope. We look and we see that there is glorious riches for those who are in Christ. Sometimes we are living as if we are in poverty when we are the richest of all because we are in Christ. And to understand the power at work within us is the same power with which God used to raise his son from the dead and seat him at his right hand in heaven. We will continue as we live this life to face many things that don't make sense to us, where things seem to be out of control. It is so encouraging to know that Paul is praying for believers. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, to truly know the hope, the riches, the power, that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so it is appropriate this morning as we come to a close, really to just turn our attention to God in joining the Apostle Paul in praying this prayer. Before we do that, though, there may be some in this room who are hearing about this hope, the riches, the power that is available, and you are on the outside looking in. You, you still are relying on the hope that you have fabricated. The strength that you have when you pull up your bootstraps. Navigating this life on your own. And I pray that this would be the day where you have eyes to see the kingdom of God and realize the glories that are available in Christ and Christ alone. The forgiveness of your sins, the gift of eternal life is found in only one and his name is Jesus. Think back to that opening um, illustration or uh, story of the, the young lady from North Korea. 
you think about the stark contrast between being a citizen in North Korea and a citizen of the United States, that pales in comparison. If you are outside of Christ and you still are in the kingdom of darkness, dead in your trespasses and sins, may you understand what true freedom is in Christ Jesus this morning. And for those of us who are in Christ and may be discouraged this morning, may the Lord answer our prayer as we pray with the Apostle Paul. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We cry out to you, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that you may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And you put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.